harvest that we do once a month, and that's coming up here in April, a couple weeks away. So you can register for that online. But if you are wondering, is this the right place for me and my family, or even how do I get connected to this place? Uh, we would love to host you in that class. Sometimes people that are there have been here maybe two or three weeks, and sometimes they've been here six or seven months. But if that's you and you need to be there, sign up online. We'd, we'd love to host you. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you are ready for Easter. Of course, we've for a couple weeks now been trying to give you tools to invite people to, uh, to our Easter services. You don't have to use these tools. Obviously, they're optional. But our goal is to make that as easy, as accessible, and dare I even say fun as possible. So I love that the announcement video said today, even if you want to have some fun, you know, do this. And that's the goal of these little uh, packets here is to, is to take away maybe the heaviness or the I don't know how they're going to respond. Uh, I've found that if you give someone a Reese's peanut butter cup with an invitation to an Easter service, they just don't get mad about that. They generally just, you know, even if they throw the invitation away, they'll eat the peanut butter cup and it's, it's all good. So uh, we have a ton of these Take as many as you want. Even in my own personal life, we'll use these and we'll give them to a bunch of our neighbors here this week. So I hope you do this. And then there's also baskets of, uh, of fortune cookies. These, I get a kick out of this, to tell you the truth. Uh, there's fortune cookies in each of the bags as well. I broke mine. I put it in my pocket and I accidentally squished it while I was singing. But uh, if you want to use these, we just thought, why not add some levity and why not add some fun to inviting people to Easter? So you can give them a fortune cookie and it says, they all say the same thing, if you're looking for a sign, this is it, harvesteaster.com. So it, it invites them to Easter for you. You can just give away fortune cookies to people. So uh, have fun with that. Uh, throw them in the Chinese restaurant and don't tell, no, don't do that. But uh, for real, have some fun and invite some people. I know that many of you submitted cards of people you were praying for last week. Uh, I was assigned quite a few of those cards. We divided them up in the staff. But I was assigned some of those cards and was praying for, for some of you and people you're inviting and even text quite a few of you here this last week. And it was awesome to hear from some of you already. Hey, the, you know, they've committed. They're going to come with me and my family's coming with me or I'm saving them a seat. My coworker told me they come. So I love to hear that. Uh, you need to be active sharing the gospel out in the workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community. You need to go and tell. You do. But there's also biblical press on come and see and inviting people to come see Jesus or come to church in this Easter season. That's what it's all about. It's a big kind of come and see effort for you to say, hey, why don't you come with me and uh, enjoy Easter together, and, and it'll be a lot of fun. Music, kids, all of it, it's going to be great, and, uh, and I can't wait. I can't wait. I do want to give you one more note, which we mentioned on the video, that uh, uh, prayer meetings tonight. Uh, we'll pray and we'll worship together for, I don't know, an hour, hour and ten minutes. There's never a, a super set time, but roughly an hour. And uh, I would love to see you here at 6 o'clock. We'll have a great time. If you've never done that, then you don't know what you're missing. If you have done it, then uh, you've, you've been there and, and you understand. But it is, it is so much fun just to get together and to do uh, some of what we've really been doing already here today of just uh, worshiping the Lord, singing to Him, praying with and for each other, uh, just having a, a time of prayer together. So uh, we'll be here at 6 o'clock tonight for anyone who wants to come, and that'll be, it, it'll be awesome. It'll be great. Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter number 3 this morning. Genesis 3, we're continuing this series that we've called Questions God Asks, looking at places in the Bible where God steps onto the scene and he asks a question. And I don't think that the series would be fully formed if I didn't cover the first question you see in Scripture. And that's what we're going to find in Genesis chapter number 3, the first question that God ever poses to humanity. <clears throat> and let's read it together. We're going to start in verse number 6. This is right as Adam and Eve sin for the first time. 
and we'll see kind of the ramifications of that and what happens and the question that God asked them. So Genesis 3, verse number 6, if you don't have a Bible, we will put it on the screen, and we'd love to give you a Bible, by the way, that's at our welcome desk. It's our gift to you. We'd love to be a blessing to you if you don't have one. But Genesis 3, verse number 6, here's what it says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat, which, by the way, if you don't know the story, was exactly what God told them not to do. Verse number 7. The eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves aprons. Then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said, and here's the question, Where art thou? Adam, where are you? Then verse number 10, he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree where have I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? So here's God once again asking questions, not because he lacks the information, but this, these are questions that are designed to probe, that are designed to draw out of Adam and in turn humanity or those that read these certain things. Uh, as a good counselor would, God will often do this. He'll ask us questions for our own self-discovery, for us to learn things about ourselves. And uh, social studies tell us that we remember far more of what we say than what we hear. So if you can get someone to verbalize uh, what needs to happen rather than just hearing what needs to happen, that's always a good thing. And so that's what God is doing with Adam here. In verse number 12, Adam says, The woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Verse 13, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this thou hast done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. The next few verses, God lays out the punishment, or what's been known as the curse. But I want us to skip forward to verse number 20. Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Let's stop for just a minute right here. Let's have a word of prayer over this time together, and then we'll get to work. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your house. We've come to you already, and we have um, sang your praises and told you how good you are and awesome you are and that we love you. And so, Lord, we just want to say in, in prayer form right now that all that is true and that you are great and that we do love you. And, Lord, we ask that your word would speak to us today. We ask that you would change us and help us. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us even beyond today to... Uh, to have courage and boldness and opportunities as we invite people to come hear the message of the gospel on Easter and use these next couple weeks as we lead up to the celebration of your resurrection and just how, how truly awesome you are that you conquered death and the grave for us. Lord, we praise your name. Amen. I don't know if you ever play hide and seek, but I do because I have kids that are six, four, three, and one, young kids, and they love to play hide and seek. And if you know anything about playing hide-and-seek with young kids, you know that they're terrible hiders. They, uh, they have this tendency to go hide in plain sight or to, you know, get under a blanket but to stick their leg and their arm, you know, peeking out. And it's very easy to hide them, so much so that uh, my uh, oldest would oftentimes, as we played hide-and-seek years ago, he had this tendency that, Brandon, where are you? Here I am. He would just come right out and he, he wouldn't even hide anymore. But kids love to play hide-and-seek. That's, that's been a game that's been a, around for a long time. It's transcultural. Why do they like to play hide-and-seek? 
they like because it thrills them to be sought, right? It thrills their soul that someone would come and seek them, and that's exciting to them. And, and really at its core, this text is thrilling, this text is exciting, that God is coming and seeking humanity. He's trying to find Adam, but it's also scary. It's scary for kids sometimes when they hide under the blankets or it's dark or in the room by themselves. But it's scary for Adam and Eve here as well, and they say as much. They say that they're, they're hiding in fear. And you could say that Genesis chapter number 3 is the first ever game of hide-and-seek. I don't know that I would call it a game per se. This, this isn't a game. It's deadly serious. But here is God coming to seek Adam and Eve who are, who are hiding. And Adam and Eve had decided to live a life of autonomy. They had decided that they wanted to live their own way rather than in obedience to God. And they go their own way, and in the midst of that, they suddenly realize the horror of what they have done, and they hide. And when God says in verse number 9, Adam, where are you? What he is doing in that question is he is calling Adam out on his hiding behavior. And there's so much to learn from this text, but I really want to focus our efforts there this morning on what it means for God to call us out of our hiding behavior. And I want to ask the text three questions. First is, why do we hide? Second is, in what ways do we hide? And then lastly is, how can we stop hiding? Or can we even stop hiding? So let's start with this idea of why do we hide? Why are they hiding? And it, it really comes across loud and clear in the text that they sin, and then they hide themselves, first with fig leaves and then ducking behind the trees in the garden. And why? Well, this is post-sin, and Adam and Eve have discovered that something is wrong with them. And actually, if you, if you read chapter 2, verse 25, the verse right before chapter 3, the lead up to this, you find that God says, Adam and Eve, they're naked and they're not ashamed. Then they sin and all of a sudden they discover their, their own nakedness and they discover this, this sense of shame. What happens to Adam and Eve post-sin is a sense of guilt and a sense of shame overtakes them. And because of this guilt and because of this shame, they now engage in their hiding behavior. This is something that is not unique to them. This is something that is, that is for all of us, that when we sin, when we do wrong, we experience guilt, we experience shame. And a few things to note about guilt and shame. First of all, guilt and shame are brothers, not twins, okay? Uh, they are used at times interchangeably in the scriptures, but they generally, when we're talking about guilt and shame, we're talking about two things that are very closely related, but not identical to each other. Guilt generally is the idea of not living up to certain morals, that there is a standard of right and wrong. However someone may define that, of course, as Christians, we would define that by the word of God, but there's a standard of right and wrong, and I cease to live up to that standard of right and wrong. I, I don't do what I should, or, or I do something that I should not, and now because of that, I experience guilt. Now, shame really is failing to live up to certain models. Shame, by and large, is not meeting certain expectations. That could be family expectations that your family has of you. That could be cultural expectations that are just unique to, to our culture or our country. Those could be expectations that we have of ourselves. But we all experience at some point in time, if not very often, guilt and shame. And you need to know up front, we'll talk about the proper application of guilt and shame in a moment, but you need to know up front that it is possible to experience an improper amount of guilt and shame. It is possible for you to feel too much guilt or shame, and it is possible for you to feel not enough guilt or shame. And you see that not only in our, in our life and in our experiences, but also in the pages of Scripture, that 
because guilt and shame are not physiological, they can affect you in a physiological way if you let them go on. It can be a, a psychosomatic thing, but because it's not physiological at its core, it is psychological, guilt and shame are connected to our insides, what we think, how we process. It's really connected to our moral compass, what we think is right or wrong, what we should do or not do. Guilt and shame are deeply connected to what the Bible would call a conscience. You can read about our conscience in Romans 2, chapters 14, or, uh, verses 14 and 15, where we find that as the internal compass, the conscience actually can be misaligned. We find that the conscience accuses us or excuses us. All of us have this thing inside that at times accuses us or excuses us. It's how we gauge if we're doing the right thing or not, or if we should feel guilt or shame or not. So at times, our conscience will accuse us too often. It will tell us that we're doing wrong too much. It's what the Bible calls a weak conscience. My preferred term is a tender conscience. It's something that is too sensitive, that it tells you you're doing wrong when, in fact, you are not doing wrong. And you need to know it's, it's possible for you to have a conscience that's misaligned that you feel guilt and shame when you shouldn't. So, for example, I've met people that feel shame because they're poor, and they shouldn't. I've met people that feel shame because they don't have the educational pedigree that maybe their parents or someone in the family wanted for them. I went to BC3, I didn't get to go to Penn State. And they feel a sense of shame about that. And I don't think they should. That, that, that's a, a cultural expectation, a family expectation. You didn't fail to live up to, to God's morals or God's standards. Guilt is the, is the same way. That there are at times people that think I'm doing something wrong when we're not. And we feel a a sense of guilt that is not accurate or proportionate. I recently read a book with my wife called Educated. It's a memoir from a, from a girl in her mid-30s, but she tells her story of living up in rural, or living in rural Idaho, and there she grew up baseline Mormon. The core of their family belief was Mormon, but coupled with it was a lot of New Age thinking. Coupled with it was a lot of paranoia, and her and her siblings were taught from a young age that all medicine is wrong, evil, bad. If, if you take a pill, if you go to a hospital, if you have your baby in a hospital, if you see a doctor, that is wrong, that is bad, never do that. And she tells the story of, of working through some of her life and understanding, and she tells the story of the first time she took ibuprofen as a college student, that she had a headache and someone gave her two little pills, ibuprofen, that amazingly took away her, her headache, but she talks about how she felt a tremendous amount of guilt in taking ibuprofen. Now, what had, what had happened to this girl, Tara Westover is her name? What had happened to her? She had been programmed in such a way, and her conscience had been misaligned to where she felt guilt for something she should not have felt guilt for, right? And this can happen to us. But the opposite can happen to us as well. And this is, you probably run the risk of the opposite happening, where you get what the Bible calls a seared conscience, or something where now you don't feel guilt and you don't feel shame enough. Now your conscience is actually cauterized, and, and it becomes to the point to where you let yourself off the hook too much, and you don't get accused enough, you just, you get excused all the time. You, you suddenly start to give yourself a, a hall pass and your, your moral compass changes to where, oh, no, that's permissible, that's okay, that's not a big deal. You find this very clearly in Jeremiah chapter number 6 where Jeremiah steps onto the scene and he says, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? And Jeremiah says, no, they, they were not at all ashamed, neither could they blush. 
Jeremiah says, here are a people that have become so hardened in their sin that they've lost their sense of shame. They've lost their ability to blush. They are unblushables. Paul actually takes this further, and he says in Philippians chapter number 3, while weeping, that there are people who not just lose their sense of shame, but actually begin to glory in it. He says in Philippians 3.18, Many walk of whom I've told you often, and I tell you now weeping, that they're the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame. So it's not just that they've lost the normal sense of I should feel shame or guilt for this, but now it's to the point to where they actually glory in the things they do that are wrong. Sin that used to sneak down the back alley and I felt ashamed about now you know, struts down Main Street. That can happen. Have we not noticed that in our culture? I don't know if anyone paid attention to the news or the Grammys last Sunday, but there, were, there was a lot that was more than shameful that happened that people gloried in and thought was awesome to entertain millions of people. What, what is that? That is a misalignment. That is, now I don't feel guilt or shame for things that clearly I should. People being proud of their sins. So guilt and shame is a little bit tricky, I'll be honest with you. It's something that we don't want to talk about. We don't want to bring out to the open, more or less. It's something that uh, we, we can't have too much of or too little of, but we want to, as Christians, take the plumb line of God's word and say, is that right? Is that wrong? Is God clear on that? And if he is, then I should feel guilt or shame when I, when I don't do it or when I don't measure up. If he's not, then, then it's up for debate. But we want to base it off of this and have our consciences aligned to the word of God. You also need to know that guilt and shame are not always bad things. There's a host of secular thinking that is basically guilt and shame are always bad. So get away from them as quickly as possible. By all means, get away from guilt or shame. If you have to go to a psychiatrist who tells you not to feel guilt or shame, do that. If you, if you have to just stop thinking about it, do that. But there's, there's a lot of our, of our culture that says, look, guilt and shame, it's completely social constructs. Morality is up for grabs. Do whatever you want and never feel guilt or shame about it. That happens very often. And you need to know that guilt and shame are terrible destinations, but they are they're gifts on, on the road you travel if, if you don't stay there too long. Guilt and shame, is, it's not where God intends you to stay and he wants you just to live and wallow in guilt and shame, but they are wonderfully beautiful as they come to you in their proper order. I would compare it to a vacation and a gas station. If I'm going on vacation, a gas station is a beautiful pit stop that may help me get to where I need to go, but I don't want a vacation at the gas station, right? I don't want to stay there. Guilt and shame can be awesome and beautiful and help you get to where you need to go. They can help you understand what's wrong and where you're deficient and where you need to grow. They can bring about change, but you don't want to live there. You actually want to respond and you do want to change. Unfortunately, though, what we often do is what the text describes to us is that we don't heed the call of our guilt and shame to live differently, but often we hide. And we hide to cover our guilt. We hide to cover our shame because we want to keep away from the eyes of others what is wrong with us. It's what we do. How do we hide? I think the text tells us very beautifully ways that we do this. And to be clear, this is my last point of clarification, and then we'll really get to work. 
To be clear, the text doesn't lay out all of the ways that we can hide. It lays out some, and we'll look at those. But there are other ways in Scripture. You could survey the Bible and find other ways that people hide, like King David, who has a tremendous amount of guilt and shame after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and, and murders his friend Uriah the Hittite. And David masks his guilt and shame more or less by being inordinately upright in other areas of his life. He, he tries to be really, really good and really noble and really upright over here to try to mask and hide his guilt and shame over there. You find this when Nathan the prophet comes to him and tells him about this man who had this lamb and somebody stole the lamb. And what does David respond with? Not what the law says to just repay the lamb. Not even what the law could call for in its maximum to repay the lamb fourfold. David says, kill the guy, which is nowhere in the law. It's completely disproportionate to say, you stole a lamb so you, you get killed. That's not how it worked. But here is David. Why does he want to be this beacon of justice? Why does he want to be so upright and so zealous about this in, his, in this moment? Because he has this profound sense of guilt and shame. And it's almost a semi-conscious eruption of his guilt that comes out of him as he, as he tries to, uh, to, to be this beacon of morality, even though he knows deep down that he's not. And this, this really solves the riddle of, of if you've ever met somebody who has a giant religious ruler who goes around and wants to make sure everyone measures up and everybody, you know, is good all the time. But then you find out a year later, five years later, ten years later, whatever it is, that they were, like, perverse. That their life was a mess. And how in the world were you telling me to do all this stuff right and wrong when, you, when your life was in shambles? Well, it's, it's a way to mask their guilt and their shame. It's a way to try to cover it up. But in this text, what you find is that Adam and Eve do primarily two things. Number one, they blame other people. They want to hide by blaming other people. Adam blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent. But Adam, he doesn't even just blame the woman. He blames the woman and God. The woman that you gave me. That's what he says, right? You gave me her. She's a lemon. <laughs> She's defective. Like, this can't be the final product, God. You know, Don't we have a software update coming along the line somewhere? Like, this, this has to improve somewhere. I don't know if it's her fault or if it's your fault, but it's certainly not my fault, right? You gave her to me. I didn't make her. You, you just, here she is, and I, I just took her, right? What is he doing? He's, he's blame shifting. He's trying to pass the buck. And we, can, we know that people do this, and it's easy for us to point out other people. But stop for a minute and ask yourself, do you see yourself in Adam's evasive response? Do you see the propensity in your own life to do this and to blame shift? I've told you this before, but it, it bears repeating. That very often, the church will blame the parents. The parents will blame the church. They'll both blame the school. The school will blame the culture. The culture will blame the media. The media will blame the consumers. But nobody blames themselves. Everybody just wants to pass it around to whose fault it is and why it is this way. And in all these blaming activities, what we're really doing is hiding. We're trying to hide our own sense of guilt and our own sense of shame. And when we do that, we doom ourselves to remain in the same position. As long as you just want to keep pushing it off to somebody else, that, it, that it's their fault and they did it and they, they programmed me that way and it was my upbringing, it was this. And to be clear, people and your upbringing, all those things, they do influence you in massive ways, but they don't determine your behavior. It's not determinism. It's not that they made you that way. I'm the middle child, so I have to act that way. No, no. Don't blame shift. Take it. D don't try to push it out to other people. But they do. They blame each other. 
And then the biggest way that they try to hide is simply just by what I'll call wearing costumes. Adam and Eve are much like us in that they don themselves in these, in these fig leaves. They, they try to cover themselves as best they can. I would say it's safe to compare this to wearing masks, to acting like you have it all together when you know deep down that you don't. Now, all people do this, including me, okay? We all do this to one degree or another, but I do believe it's startling how often and how much people of faith do this. I would argue and argue strongly that people of faith should have more tools at their disposal to not participate in hiding behavior and wearing masks and being a fraud. But we often do this. We want to pretend like we're further along than we are. We want to pretend like we don't struggle with sin the way that we do. That we don't struggle with the love of money or we don't struggle with deceit or we don't struggle with pornography or we don't struggle with anger or laziness or prayerlessness. And oftentimes Christian people, many churches are plagued by people who want to put on a show and want to do the song and dance and want to make sure everyone thinks that they're good and they're cleaned up and they're awesome and they're absolutely fantastic and they're reluctant to admit that they have issues, that there's problems, that there's sin that they are wrestling with. And we give ourselves good reasons to do this. Well, you know, my unbelieving friends would find out I struggled with this, and you know, then they'd think less of God, and I want God to be thought highly of, or you know, I, I, don't, want, I don't want to mess up somebody else, or I don't want to be a burden to them. I don't want to put my, my burdens and my problems on them. They have enough to deal with. And we, we give ourselves all these excuses, and we start to just put on masks all the time. I think our church is better at avoiding this than most, but I think... I'm pretty sure we would all be aware that we still do this. And it's unhealthy. I would argue for Christian people, it doesn't even make sense. If you're a Christian, what that means is that you have responded to the gospel of Jesus, which says, in short, you are a mess, you have sin, you cannot fix yourself, it is a problem that you're not going to solve on your own. You actually need Jesus to come and to take care of the problem for you, to die for your sin, to take it on himself, to pay for it himself, because you're not getting that done on your own, right? And being saved, being a Christian, literally requires you to walk through the low door of humility and admit that I have a sin problem and that I cannot solve it myself. That's how you get to be a Christian. So I don't understand how you enter into Christianity that way and then flip the script and act like everything is honky-dory. Right? Like we we start the journey by admitting it's not honky-dory. It's not good. It's real bad, right? Jesus even tells us to pray. Like the disciples' prayer is actually that we would pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. What he's saying is you should pray and admit, I still need as a disciple deliverance from evil, and you have the power and you have the kingdom and you have the glory. I can't do it myself. I don't have the power in and of myself. I I, I can't make this happen. I I need deliverance from evil, and I need a power outside of me to help me do this, God, right? That's how we get to be a Christian. That's how we're supposed to pray as Christians. So where do we go off the reservation and start saying, 
well, uh, yeah, that's how I pray and that's how I got saved, but everything's fine. I'm just going to put on a mask and put on a show. It doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. I understand that we don't want all of our skeletons to come out of our closet and everyone to examine them and start to, you know, run a DNA profile on the skeletons in our closet. I get that, okay? I'm the same way. But the idea that as Christians we wouldn't be open and honest with God first and foremost, right? I mean, Adam and Eve hiding behind trees is silly. It's dumb. Like, you think that's going to work? But it's just as silly for us to try to hide from God and, and not admit, not confess, and, and just recognize where we're at. But not even just God, to, to hide from our Christian spouses, to hide from our brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm not saying that you have to open up and have a tell-all to everybody you see all the time, but there should be relationships inside the church. There should be relationships in your own Christian family where you can be open and honest, and you can actually start to talk about the things that you feel shame about, the things you feel guilty about. It should be that our, our conversations with our brothers and sisters in Christ aren't exclusively casual and about the weather and sports and March Madness and yeah, I can't believe the Grammys too. It, sh- it should go deeper than that, right? And start to get into my addictions, my struggles. The, I, I just, it's, it's been a long time that I've been struggling with pornography. I still feel shame about my abortion. I, like those sorts of things should be conversations that we have. We should not, we should not feel the need to hide from each other and to constantly put a mask and put a veneer on. But that's what Adam and Eve do. This is what we do often. This is what God is trying to prevent in their lives and ours when God comes and says, where are you? He's trying to call us out on our hiding behavior. and say, don't do that. Come here, come out. Let me see you. Some of you, the best thing you could do this week is not invite somebody to Easter. Although I hope that you will. I'm not saying don't. Some of you, the best thing you could do this week is just say, here I am. Some of you, the, the best thing you could do is go to God this week and say, God, you already know where I'm at, but I'm telling you, here I am. I'm a mess. I'm, I am riddled with guilt and shame, and I need your help. Some of you teens, young people in the room, 7th, 8th grade, seniors in high school, even college students, some of the best things you could do this week would be to go to your parents and say, Mom and Dad, here I am. I have been fronting. I've been, I've, I've been playing a game. I've been hiding this, and, and I don't want to anymore. And I, I'm, I'm struggling to sleep at night, and I'm struggling to, it's, it's constantly in my head, and I just, I just need to, to tell you as, as my authority and my parents, here I am. Some of you spouses need to go to your spouse and just admit, here I am. It's not pretty, and I know that I've broken your trust, and, and I've, I'm sorry, but I, I just got to be honest. I don't want to hide anymore. This would be the best thing for you. And some of you right now are like, okay, I can picture it. Yes, I do need to do this. I want to do this. There's a, there's a tug in you right now. You want to do it. You want to be open. But, but you're suspicious of their love. You're scared that they'll respond in a way that, it, that is less than gracious or less than beautiful. So, so now you're going to put it on them and you're going to, oh, I don't know how they respond, so I, I'm not going to do it myself. Don't let what they, let them take care of them. Let them figure out forgiveness and grace on, on, on their own. You, you be open Come out of hiding. 
Here's, here's the game that we play all the time when it comes to this, where we want to confess, we want to stop our hiding behavior, but we convince ourselves that, that we shouldn't. Here's how it works. The opportunity comes up for us to whatever, embezzle, have an affair, whatever it may be. And we act on it, and we sin. And then we feel the guilt, and then we feel the shame. And then we want to cover it up. And we know that the scriptures teach us that whosoever covers the sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsaketh shall find mercy. We know that, but nevertheless, we still find ourselves being like Adam and Eve and, and covering it up. And so we tell ourselves, I shouldn't. I need to be open. And you want to. But then this little thing starts working. And you start to convince yourself that you will do a public good to keep it hidden. And what you'll do is this. Well, if I own up to that, I will be fired. Probably. Maybe not, but probably. I could be. I'm supposed to provide for my wife and my kids, and I mean, do I want them to be on the street? I, I don't need to be fired. That's bad for them, so why should I confess? Because that's going to be bad for them, so I'm doing them a service not to confess. Or maybe it's not them. Maybe it's my coworker. Well, if I confess, they're, they're going to, maybe they'll fire me. And I know the person right below me in the org chart. They just had a baby, and they have a lot going on, and they're going to get handed all my responsibilities. So out of love for Bob, the person below me on the org chart, I, w- I will keep this hidden because I don't want them to have my, I, don't, I mean, it's going to be tough on them. I care too much about them, right? So now you feel good about hiding. Now you feel like you're doing a great thing. Well, if I was open with my spouse, then who knows? I mean, they could divorce me, and I have kids. How would that be good for the kids? I mean, they need a mom and dad. That's not going to be good for them. So before you know it, you're pinning a merit badge on yourself for hiding. Because you're, you're, you're hiding, now you're convinced, and justified in your own mind that that is somehow profitable for all the other people around you. And I'm here to tell you as plainly, but as lovingly as I possibly can as your pastor, that's stupid. Okay? You continuing to hide does no one any good. It doesn't help you. It's unhealthy. It doesn't lead to prospering. The way forward is the way of the gospel to confess and to forsake and to lay it down and to come out from hiding and say, here I am. God is calling my name. I need to step up and I don't want to continue this this hiding behavior. You say, no, no, Pat, no, I've, I've sinned, I've done wrong, but I've figured it out. No, it's long term. I've, I've done the math, I've, done all the, I've, I've made a spreadsheet. It's, it's good long term, I should keep hiding. Don't believe everything you think. You, you, <laughs> when you sin, you do wrong stuff, yeah, but it's not like your sin doesn't affect this, okay? Your mind is not a citadel unto itself that's unaffected by the sin in your life. You don't think on an island all by yourself and rationalize completely away from the ramifications of of wrong. That's not how it works. Listen to the voice of God. Have him call your name. Where are you? Don't don't participate in the hiding behavior. Last question, and we're done. Can we ever stop hiding? I think we've already answered it. The simple answer is yes. We know this because Adam and Eve actually stopped. They come out. They, they allow God to address them. They allow him to investigate and to probe and to ask them questions. And, and they, they come out from their hiding behavior in many, many ways. And what they needed is exactly what you need and honestly what you have. And, you, and I want to remind you of this. What they needed to stop their hiding behavior, first and foremost, was a seeking God. And I love that in verse number 9. That God 
comes and God pursues. Not oblivious to what they had done. He knew what they had done. But he comes and he pursues them and it turns on its head the notion that somehow we're constantly seeking God and God is playing hide and seek with us and he's hiding from us. There are a lot of people that think that all of religion, you know, is, is just man's attempt to go find God in some way, shape, or form and that, you know, we can't and who even knows if he exists. That's, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the way it works. The truth is that we're the ones that hide from God. We're the ones that want to dampen down our guilt and our shame. And we're told very plainly in Romans 3 that none of us understand and none of us seek God. We're told very plainly in, in John's epistles that we love him because he first loved us and that he initiates and that he pursues and that he's the seeker. And we should celebrate that and thank God for that this morning. Jesus tells the parables in Luke that there were 99 sheep and then the one was lost and he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one and then the, the lady leaves all and, and spends all of her energy pursuing the coins that she lost and there's the prodigal son and the father who sits there waiting, wanting, yearning to, to welcome his son back. What is Jesus describing in that chapter? He's describing the heart of God, that God wants to bring you to a place where you should be. God will seek you, God will pursue you, he will chase you down and he will try to get you away from your hiding behavior and that's awesome that's something we should praise God for at times he will do it in painful ways but he will he will nevertheless chase you down and want you to get away from it which is the opposite of what I do probably the opposite of what you do when someone offends you when someone offends me I want to give them the cold shoulder I want to stiff arm them I, I want to treat them as though they're unimportant and they're trivial and ignore them, and just, you're dead to me, because you hurt me, right? Thank God he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give us the cold shoulder. He wants us. He pursues us. I hope that, that right now you just stop, and you just think, and, and meditate for just a moment on the reality that God would become man to seek and to save that which is lost. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but God to man is a significant downgrade. But that's, those aren't the same. That he would do that. Why? To seek us, to save us. So Adam and Eve have this seeking, pursuing God, and so do you and I. And you need that. But you also need really what they needed, which was a real covering. And that's the beauty of verses 20 and 21, where God says, I'm going to paraphrase it, more or less, Yo, good effort on the, on the fig leaves and the aprons there, but let me get you a real covering. I see what you tried to do there. You, you, tried, you tried to hide the shame that you're feeling now from your nakedness, but let, let me go ahead and uh, let me give you something more permanent. Let, let me cover you, but I'm not going to give you a flimsy one that's going to wither away. I, I, let me give you a coat. and this co It's going to come at a cost. I'm going to have to shed some blood for it, but let, let, me give you, let me give you a coat that'll cover you the real way, the way you need to be covered. And in, in the story, you see just a beautiful prototype of the gospel. A story of man sinning, feeling guilt and shame because of that sin, trying to cover that guilt and shame in their own ways and in their hiding behavior, and God graciously coming into this wrecked world to provide a perfect covering for them. And that's us. That's our story. The story of God coming into our wrecked world to pursue us and want to take us away from our sin and our shame and our guilt and provide us a perfect covering in Jesus who dies for all of that, who wants to take it away, 
and say, I will do for you what you don't stand a chance of doing for yourself, and I can forgive you, and I can clean you, and I, I can take away all of the sense of guilt and shame, and I can cover you. So the message of Genesis 3 this morning is simply this. God doesn't want you to pretend. He doesn't want you to wear a mask. And if I know you, you don't want to wear a mask either. But you find yourself doing it at times. So answer the question and step up and say, God, here I am. Admit you're a work in progress. I'll go first. I'm a work in progress. For real. <laughs> like, for real. I have issues and sins and struggles and problems, and I struggle to be the pastor that I want to be and the dad that I want to be and the husband that I want to be and the, and the brother and the son that I want to be. I struggle all the time. Admit that you haven't arrived. Trust in his mercy and his grace. And see if you don't find that that's far more authentic, that it's far more attractive, that that's far more life-giving. If you will confess and forsake your sins, see if you don't find that there's mercy there and that you'll prosper in a way that you never will if you're hiding, hiding, hiding all the time. Let's take a moment and let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty of this text that it so accurately describes our state that we oftentimes find ourselves guilty and shameful for the right reasons, because we've engaged in wrong, shameful behavior. And we thank you that you and your mercy seek us, want us, and have the solution for our sin and guilt and shame. Lord, I pray today that if there's someone in this room that does not know you as their Savior, they've never, they've never experienced what it is to feel full forgiveness of their sins, that they would put their trust in you. But Lord, for all the Christians in the room, I pray that this would not be us. I pray that we would not be the people that feel like we have to wear a mask and put on a front and pretend with our family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with you. I pray that we would live honest, authentic lives, and even at times that means that we have to ask for prayer because we're struggling. We have to admit that we're a mess and that we've fallen woefully short. But I pray that this would be a beautiful thing for us, that we would find the health and the life-giving nature of confessing and forsaking our sins, and that we would find the power that we need to be delivered from evil and to kill off the sin in our lives in the first place. Lord, we ask this in your name. I'm going to ask you to remain in the spirit of prayer this morning, and I want you, if you're a Christian, if you know Jesus as your Savior, I just want you to take a moment and talk to him. Take the next 90 seconds or so and pray to him. Thank him for being a seeking, pursuing God who doesn't give you the cold shoulder. Thank him for the covering for your sin that you so desperately needed in Jesus. Take some time right now to be honest and open with him and say, God, here I am. You know if you need to do that. If you walked in the room this morning hiding, be open with him. Commit to him that you're going to tell the people in your life that you need to tell about what's going on, that you need to get some accountability. Do that with him right now. But as Christians pray, if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, what I mean by that is you, 
you don't know what it's like to receive forgiveness of your sins. That's what being saved or having a Savior is. You are saved from your sin. If you don't know what it's like to experience His full forgiveness, then I want to invite you to today. The truth is that Jesus did come and He did die on a cross and He did die to take away your sin and in turn your guilt and your shame. And if you will put your faith and your trust in him, call out to him, put your faith in him, he says that he will save you. If you'll come to him just as you are, he'll take you. He won't leave you that way, but he'll take you. And if you would like to right now where you sit, call out by faith in your heart to the Lord and ask him to save you, maybe pray something like this. It doesn't have to be these exact words. It doesn't have to be verbatim, but something like this. Just say, Jesus, I know that I have sin. Simply put, Jesus, I am a sinner. And I know that I cannot forgive myself. I know I cannot fix myself or clean myself. And I'm coming out in the open today and I'm saying, Jesus, save me. Clean me. Jesus, I'm trusting in you and in your forgiveness. Jesus, right now, I believe that you died on a cross for me and my sin. And I even believe that you rose from the dead in victory. And I'm putting my trust in you and only you. Once again, it doesn't have to be exactly those words, but if you will, if you will genuinely ask him to save you, I can promise you, based on his word, that he will, that he will. Lord, one more time we come thanking you for being so unbelievably good to us. I pray that today, I pray that tonight as we have a prayer meeting that we would celebrate and our hearts would burst with praise in your gospel and in your good news that we don't have to stay at the pit stop of, of sin and shame and guilt, but that you want to deliver us from that and you want to change us. And Lord, I, I pray that we, would, that we would be people that seek that, that we would want to respond to Genesis chapter number three. Lord, we love you and we pray this in your name. Amen. Let's take just a couple moments and sing with Matt and we'll baptize. God is so good. God.